Uh, that's really where we're going to go this morning is to talk about truth, um, which hopefully by the end of this, and I don't know how I can do with it, but uh, we can begin to really just understand the depth and the need for um, a robust view and passion for truth. Um, so we're going to kick into that. Let me go ahead and open us in prayer, and we'll get started. Uh, Father, uh, you know even more intimately than we do just the, the depth of our struggles coming in this morning, just the wounds that we have, the open wounds that we have, just the struggles and the trials and the circumstances and what the felt reality of that really is like. You know our need for love, for acceptance, for affirmation. You know how weak we really feel when it comes to the universal things and the big things. There's so much that's out of our control. And I just pray this morning that if anything else happens, what we would do is turn to you with sincerity and, and just lay our human condition in front of you. That we wouldn't strive, we wouldn't try to control, we wouldn't obsess, we wouldn't worry. But with the faith of a child, we would just lay it before you um, with full expectancy that even in the midst of the, the, the darkest nights, you can um, shine a light into our hearts, that you can meet us that you can speak truth into our ears. And so we give this morning to you, Christ. C.S. Lewis is uh, kind of a favorite author of mine. And um, if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you know that uh, World War II, in in a very strange way, was a a catalytic event in his life as kind of a Christian leader and apologist. During World War II, uh, he wrote the screw tape letters which would make him famous in America, largely in America. Uh, he had the ideas first for the Chronicles of Narnia. He traveled around extensively um, sharing with the Royal Air Force, the, the British Royal Air Force. And then he gave a series of broadcast talks. C.S. Lewis's voice was actually one of the most recognizable voices on the radio um, in all of England um, during World War II, you know, short of Winston Churchill and some radio announcers, it was C.S. Lewis's voice. And he gave these broadcast talks, which later were pulled together into a book called Mere Christianity. And so Lewis did all this traveling, all this extensive work, while also housing some small school children from London who were escaping the bombing. Uh, it's interesting, speculation is that, that Hitler told uh, the German Air Force that they weren't allowed to bomb Oxford. One, it was a little bit further up. They had problems with fuel. But uh, the Nazis were really into culture, were really into art. And the modern university was born in Paris. A bunch of teachers who felt like they were not free to really explore ideas um, over 500 years ago kind of went uh, west. And they ended up in a little town where there was an ox ford um, kind of in the river. And that began Oxford University. University of Paris is gone Oxford is the oldest living university, modern university there is. And a lot of people speculate that that was why uh, Hitler forbid the bombing of Oxford because kind of in his new world order, if he took over all of Europe, he was going to use it as a cultural center, a center of learning. And anyways, the children from London went into the countryside and went north, and Lewis took some of these kids into his house. 
That's why the line, the witch in the wardrobe starts with young school children living in the house of a professor. And Lewis did all this while teaching at Oxford. And he wrote an essay, and, and you can find it in this compilation of essays, The Weight of Glory. But he wrote an essay called Learning in Wartime. Because here he was in the midst of the great war, this world war, the greatest of all wars, and he had these students come in, and there was an elephant in the room. And so he just tackled it head on. He really asked the question, what are we doing learning in wartime? Why are we pursuing education in the midst of all this suffering and, and the urgency of what is happening all around us? Listen to kind of how he frames this. He says, or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed how can we, continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? I think it's really a germane question to all of us um, as adults as those that don't need to get a high school diploma or a college diploma, uh, as those who have, have kind of launched into the sea of life, uh, who are dealing with families, dealing with jobs, dealing with dire situations, dealing with economic difficulties, dealing with the reality of life in such an urgent fashion, um, life and death in some sense, why would we pursue education? Why would we pursue these placid events? Isn't it like fiddling while Rome burns? It's fascinating. Lewis begins by saying, you know, the real question is not that one. The real question is, why were we able to do it um, when there wasn't a war and eternity was hanging in the balance? So Lewis says, you know, there's only one guy who talks about heaven and hell in the New Testament. Unfortunately, it's Jesus. You can't really take heaven and hell out of the New Testament. And he's saying that's the reality. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. And with such urgency, such eternal weight, how can we pursue placid endeavors um, when those events are kind of hanging in the balance? And he says war really is not the issue. The issue is a much broader picture. Listen to how he says it. To admit that we retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our, that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with, quote-unquote, normal life. Life has never been normal. And so he begins to kind of go into this essay, and, and I want to use that as a jumping-off point for this morning, to say that there's a real struggle here with truth. Truth is objective by nature, so it feels cold sometimes or it feels distant. There's something that you and I and everyone we know share in common, and that's that our felt reality is just that. It's our felt reality. And when we go to a doctor, having him prescribe tests, 
having him run tests, having him give us a diagnosis that sounds long and difficult and not like it really gets rid of the pain today is not really what we want, right? When we go into a doctor, we want it all to go away right then. We really, really want the Band-Aid, don't we? Um, Eugene Peterson said that a pastor's job is not to meet felt needs, but to discern what the real needs are and meet those. And it'd be really interesting if we thought um, that Christianity or church or teaching was really about what made us feel better. I, I want in my gut to feel better, but I, I don't want Christianity to be only about that. If Christianity, if, if coming, if us talking is just about me getting an itch scratched, if it's just about a band-aid, if it's just about something that makes me feel better when I walk out, but it has nothing to do with truth, if there's no foundation underneath it that's really informing all this, but it's just about my emotions, that's not really what I want. At age 22, when I started reading and, and looking into Christianity and saying, where is it at with this whole God question and Jesus question, what I was really driving that was I didn't want to be an idiot. Like, I really, I'd never read anything in my life but Sports Illustrated until I was 22. And then all of a sudden, this, this driving thing came into my head is, you know what, there's something out there that's real, and I have no clue what it is. Now, I don't want to be an idiot. I want, I want to know what's true. And, and the pursuit of this thing wasn't about it just working. And I think all of us, when we step back, realize it's not just about it working. And if we use the felt realities to argue against truth, it's a lot like saying there are so many patients right now, um, medical patients, that, that it would be silly for doctors to study. I mean, why would doctors take time to read journals and study and, and have their noses in books when there are so many people hurting right now? I mean, that's a foolish argument, right? I mean, if doctors aren't studying, aren't learning, if there's not something informing their practice, ultimately they're not going to be doing any good for, for needy, hurting people. And if the church and if Christians, if we don't continue to learn even though there's some very real hurts and very real needs in this congregation and in this city, if we don't continue to learn, eventually we have nothing of eternal value to speak into these needs. We only have band-aids to put on cancer wounds. Right? If you open your Bible with me, let's turn to Judges. C.S. Lewis said, if we don't understand the bigger picture here, we're just giving in to mass emotions. Listen to what we read in Judges. In, uh, this is Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And you kind of get the next, like, act 2. Like, act 1 is all the Israelites, Moses, and then Joshua eventually coming into the land. And here's act 2. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, verse 10, another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the balls. They, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, 
and they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. So the, the ground, the foundation that was supposed to inform truth or their faith had eroded, and what that left was this, they followed the gods of the peoples around them. When we don't have a foundation, and when truth begins to not matter, what really guides us is pop culture and fashion. If there's any one thing you're going to hear throughout what I have to say, and if, and if you remember, it's just this. If we don't have a perspective with which to view what is going on, and really be able to size up the universal things at work and the eternal things at work, then we are adrift and we are going to be carried back and forth by pop culture or fashion. Fast forward to Kings, if you would, First Kings. We'll see the same pattern happen again. This is one of the most ironic passages in all of Scripture to me. Because the book of Proverbs, you know, it's all in there. It's about wisdom, and, and this is what really makes sense. If you do this, this is how the right kind of circumstances are going to come about. It's all about wisdom, and it says at the beginning of Proverbs that Solomon is doing this so that his son may be wise. His son comes into power, and in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, listen to what happens. Solomon goes, goes by the wayside. The son comes into power, and... The people come to him and say, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And the king answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. And so then now he goes and he consults the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? And in verse 7 they replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Did you, anyone see Braveheart? Remember like the kind of mousy prince guy? And he had his little buddy that was always kind of following him around and telling him what to do? Like that's the picture here, right? Um, he consulted the young men who had grown up with him, his buddies, and were serving him. And he asked them, what is your advice? How would you answer me? And then... Verse 10, the young men replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Different sets of advice. Three days later, um, all the people returned to Roboam, as the king had said, and come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. And he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. This son, who had a whole book of Proverbs written that he would have wisdom and know how to best rule, right, rejects all wisdom and the elders who have wisdom and goes to his friends and their dominant feeling is it's our turn now and we're going to get the most of this and boy think of the things we can do and and their ideas and their worldview and their pop culture and their fashion and what they feel dictates to the king what he says to the people and immediately we go into a passage where it talks about 
the kingdom of Israel being ripped in half, never to be joined again. Ripped in half. I mean, the guy just blew it. And what you begin to see here is that wisdom and knowledge is, is not something that has value when it's just out there. I'm glad that someone has it. I'm glad that it's written down. You know, I, it's on the internet. I could go to Wikipedia if I needed to. Wisdom is a tool. Knowledge is a tool. Truth is a, a way of life. It's a desire. It's a hunger. That when these things are in us, and we don't want just what is fashionable, but we want to stand back and gain perspective, and to lead well, or serve well, or be the right kinds of people, only then when it's internalized, when we can honestly love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I got it backwards. Mine was at the end, but that's cool. Like, with all our mind, that that's a command. You're not commanded to take a Killens College class. You're not. It'd be really cool if you did. But you're not commanded as Christians to do that. You're commanded, though, to love God with all your mind. And it's this fascinating thing that we see when we reject that. What ends up happening is we end up with pop culture. We end up with fashion. We end up going with the flow. Do you see that? It's, it's a fascinating thing with me. I wanted to illustrate some of this by a picture. So we've got a picture. And this picture here was painted by um, John Turnbull. John Turnbull painted this. It's called the, De uh, the Declaration of Independence. It hangs 12 by 18 in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. It's seen by 3 to 5 million people a year. And it's probably been viewed by, by more Americans than any other single painting. Okay? This is a picture. Um, the problem is the events it depicts never actually happened. It never actually happened. You see, the signing of the Declaration of Independence began on August 2nd when the Congress was in recess, and it got signed one by one as people returned to Philadelphia on recess. Um, it never happened in a session like this. The chairs weren't plush like this when the men met. They were, they were just the plainest Windsor chairs. There was no exotic draperies on the windows. There was no warlike emblems. That was an embellishment for artistic purposes. This shows 13 men who weren't a part of the signing and leaves out a bunch of men who were a part of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, this represents probably a lot more uh, closely events that happened on June 26th when the Declaration was submitted, but even that wasn't submitted in a session by Thomas Jefferson. This picture represents something. Now, here's the interesting thing. When this is all we have, it's our view of reality. If we were a part of crafting this picture, we would be very, um, and we can leave this up for a little bit, but we would be very aware of, of what is accurate. The fact that 35 of the faces were painted in real life as John Turnbull traveled around and really wanted to get accurately the men who, who were a part of this movement. It wasn't a czar, it wasn't an emperor, it wasn't uh, any of those things, but it was a, a democratic group, a congress assembled for the first time signing this declaration that they would be independent and not be ruled by, by a king or a noble or a man um, that they're accountable to with no representation. This, this great event, he wanted to record the faces. It's true. Okay, so that's accurate. So if you're part of creating this picture, this actually was the room and the dimensions of the room are accurate. And so you'd begin to go, there's a lot of things in here, 
but you'd understand that the picture as is isn't necessarily true. It's that it artistically and symbolically represents something of profound meaning, especially to this country. If you're a part of shaping it, you understand what's truth. If all you do is see a picture, you end up eventually accepting it as a representation of fact, of truth. And you don't understand what really is and what really isn't. So write this down if you're a note taker. A picture is worth a thousand words. But that doesn't mean that all of those words are true. A picture is worth a thousand words. But that doesn't mean that all of those words are true. So the idea here is that we all have a paradigm that's been handed to us. Why? Because we've grown up in a generation and there's generational distinctives. There just are. We've grown up with media. We've grown up in a certain culture. We've grown up in a certain geographical location in this country. We've grown up in a certain family. And we have a picture that's been handed to us. A lot of it's probably true, but guess what? Some of the paradigms that we have, uh, or parts of those paradigms, are probably not true. In a C.S. Lewis class I used to teach, I used to, I used to ask people, like, um, raise your hand if 100% of your beliefs, 100% of them are 100% true. So you're admitting that not all your beliefs are true. So, Ken Michelson or Mason, which one of your beliefs, you don't have to answer this, this is rhetorical, but which one of your beliefs that you're saying you have that aren't 100% true, which one of them is false? You know, I mean, you're saying that your whole set of beliefs, your, your pictures and your paradigms aren't 100% true, so if they're not 100% true, which parts are false? Well, nobody here can answer that question. And the reason you can't answer that question is because if we knew what was false, we would weed it out and replace it with something else, right? We know that all our beliefs aren't true, but the ones that are wrong are lurking around there. We don't necessarily know which ones they are. We just know that they're there. And so the thing is, we should have a humility with our paradigms and say, I've got a picture. But unless I evaluate, unless I broaden out, unless I care about truth, I can't begin to discern what parts of these pictures, of these paradigms that I have, that I've grown up with, are actually the true parts, and which are just symbolic representations, or, or they, they, they have a value to them, but they're not necessarily accurate. So here's how this works. There is a gulf that opened up in Judges between the generation that knew God and a generation that came up. Those two generations went different directions. There's a gulf that opened up between the two of them, right? There is a gulf opening up right now in American Christianity between the generations before and the 20-something and below generations now. Huge gulf. Three out of every four college kids walks away from the faith if they go into college believing in Christianity. Now, the interesting thing is one generation is here, and they have their picture. And if we don't critique our pictures, what we'll do is we'll use our pictures to critique other things. So we have a picture of Christianity, and, and forgive me with generalizations here, but one generation will come and say, as long as the worship is good, as long as the music and the songs we sing are meaningful to me, as long as we go 
verse by verse through the Bible, as long as we, whatever, then things are good. Because it matches my picture. And nobody's hitting in that generation, or, or there's, there's some that are, but as a whole, no one in that generation is looking at those statistics and going, stop everything. Nothing matters. Nothing in this room that is an object matters. It has no soul. It has no value. It's all going to burn. Nothing here matters. We're losing a whole generation. Stop everything. Hit the panic button. Something's wrong and we have to fix it. On the other hand, you've got a 20-something generation. And here's the fascinating thing about the 20-something generation. To have, you know, you know, and I had two conversations with 20-somethings this week that were explaining their generation to me, so you can't get mad at me, okay? I'll, you can ask me who to get mad at afterwards. I'll give you names. Um, but here's the 20-something generations. The tightness of their relationships usually depends on being able to be against something together. By being against something that they both find dissatisfying or distasteful, there's an intimacy that comes from that. Because ultimately, ownership is the value of the 20-something generation. And as soon as a bunch of people grab around something, it's time for that fashion to change, and I'll go find a new fashion. If, if buying clothes at the thrift store be begins to become cool, well, I'll leave that, and I'll go you know, buy my clothes somewhere else. Because I have to own it, and I have to be distinct and unique, and I'm not going to submit or follow or be a part of the herd in anything. Okay? So the view the 20-somethings bring to the church is a lot like the view these guys brought to the, the United States Re Revolution, the Revolutionary War. That it was tyranny that, that got them to reject and fight against England. The 20-somethings go, I don't want the institution in tyranny, and so I will push that away and go find something that's less tyrannical, less institutional, less hierarchical, less whatever. Here's the crazy thing. Tyranny, the definition of tyranny for, for the, the United States back at that point in time, the colonies, was that they weren't allowed to be a part of the conversation. They weren't allowed to be a part of the conversation. They didn't have representation in government where the conversations take place. And so what they said is, if you can't let us be a part of the conversation, and then you rule us, that's tyranny, and we're against that. The crazy thing about the 20-something generation today is they don't want to be a part of the conversation. It's not that they haven't been invited in. It's not that they can't take part in it. It's not that they couldn't influence it. It's that from the outset, they would rather exclude themselves and not have to be a part of the conversation. So it's not that tyranny necessarily exists. It certainly might in some churches, but it doesn't necessarily exist. The 20-somethings just go straight to tyranny, push away, but it's their desire to be apart from living in, in a, a collective that really drives it. The collective, what God created, the body, where you don't necessarily own all yourself, and everybody has an interdependency. That's the very thing that they want to push away. It's not that it is tyrannical by the lack of representation or communication or whatever. It's just that I just I want to be outside of it on my own. I read a great, a great article, you know, and the Enlightenment brought individualism. Postmodernity brought hyper on steroids, out of control, souped up individualism. 
Um, we were so radically just centered that way. Now, I'm not saying the 20-something suck. If I was saying that, you guys would be happy because then you could reject me. Um, I'd be playing right into your hands. What I'm saying is the, these two generations have pictures. They have pictures, and they're evaluating reality and critiquing reality based on their pictures. Here's the real irony that they both have wrong, right? Uh, pastors exist, leaders in churches and elders exist to equip people to do the work of ministry. Both of these generations will look at the work, critique the work. It's not a good enough work. We're not doing a good enough job. And they'll pin it back on who? The leaders. Because this generation was taught to just sit and be dependent and to tithe and that it's the leaders who will do the programs and create the formulas and move everyone around and do the work. And so the funny thing is then on this side, um, we'll get critiqued. The 20-somethings will use the very problems that they have the abilities to fix. The very things that they're in tune with, that they know how to bring about authentic community, uh, a deeper discussion about spiritual things, a rejection of materialism at times. The very things that they could contribute, they actually use to, to reject the church. So both these pictures, both these paradigms, look at the problems that they, they were designed to fix, that God made them, so to, to fix, God uniquely shaped you and gave you a ministry so that you'd be able to do something that others can't do. So the very things these generations are supposed to do is the reasons that they usually hide behind for lack of involvement in church. Paradigms are, are crazy things. If we're not a part of shaping them, we end up taking them and using them to critique reality and other things like that. We end up the victim of our generation, we end up the victim of our culture, we end up with fashion, we end up with pop culture. I don't want that. Brandon Reynolds, I, I had, I've lost two nights of sleep over this message. I was with two guys in my house last night for an hour and a half wrestling with this and talking to Brandon this morning, like, <laughs> Brandon, seriously, what is it? Like, truth matters so much, but the felt reality of it, it's just so hard to come by. And, and it's just simply that desire to say, we don't want Christianity to just be something like TV or the talk shows or Oprah that feel good or give us some cool little things. We don't want just that. We want something more. Um, there's a quote that's back further, but it's Charles Malik. This guy was born in Lebanon. He was a theologian, ended up as a politician, actually had a hand in writing the, the, the uh, United Nations Declaration on Human Rights back in the 40s. But listen to what he says here. He says, I must be frank with you. The greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. The mind in its greatest and deepest reaches is not cared for enough. If we don't nurture it, if we don't care for it, if truth doesn't matter, if critiquing paradigms doesn't matter, trying to get the eternal perspective doesn't matter, then generations will go different ways because they adhere to a different, um, different sense of fashion. So fashion will take us apart. Herman Melville, um, who was a very spiritual guy, lived in the 1800s, wrote this poem there was a crazy thing in 1863 that happened. The conscription laws, the draft laws for the North caused an uproar in New York. They didn't want to get drafted into the Civil War by Lincoln. 
And so there was these riots that went through New York, and they actually grabbed black men in New York and hung them kind of because of, of mob. You know, I mean, just what mobs do. And Dickens writes this poem from the perspective of being on a rooftop and watching this. And just begin, it's the last line I want to focus on, but I'll just give you the context here. It says this, Beneath the stars, the roofy desert spreads. Vacant is Libya. All is hushed nearby. Yet fitfully, from far, breaks a mixed surf of muffled sound. The atheist roar of riot. If you ever want to know why I love art, I'm horrible at art, right? I want to know why I love it. It's phrases like that. The atheist roar of riot. What is a mob? What is a herd? We're a herd creature. We know that group think, all that other stuff. A mob, a herd, a stampede is everyone running together with no sense of where you're going or why. The atheist roar of riot. The opposite of truth, the opposite of, of perspective, the opposite of knowledge, the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of being able to stand back and grab the eternal and saying, we can't compare war with normal life. There is no such thing as normal life. The circumstances are different than that. Without that kind of perspective, we end up in our generation, in our culture, with pop culture, with fashion, taking us where we think is good because it fits our picture that we've never critiqued, we've never analyzed. Do you understand the danger there? I mean, Christian subculture, we run from the what would Jesus do, WWJD, to whatever the latest and greatest Chris Tomlin song is, to whatever the latest and greatest whatever is. We are people. We're humans. And if we don't analyze what we should really be about, what really is true, the foundations that inform all this, we're just going to go back and forth, whatever the latest fashion is. Let me read you one last quote from Lewis. And then uh, I'm going to invite somebody to come up and share their testimony. But this is a, an extended quote. I think it's on the screen, but let me just read it. Lewis says this, Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past, not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future and yet need something to set against the present to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. Daniel Boorstin, who was a former librarian of Congress, said, um, not understanding the past is like trying to plant cut flowers. I wasn't going to say this, but I'll say it. Look, I've gotten... there and it's real, and it has nothing to do with any individual. It has to do with just the way things always are, that we're always struggling with. But I've had some people decide or, or talk to me about, and this is well-meaning conversation, so please hear me. Uh, we're done with the Congo. We don't want it anymore. And my comment is, 
We went into the Congo when Africa was fashionable, not because it was fashionable, but because it mattered, because people matter, and because, you know what? We were supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that 95% of Antioch's budget, $500,000 a year, goes to the community of Bend in the form of pastors and kids' ministries and lunches and coffees and late-night emails and phone calls and small groups and different ministries that you guys get involved with and communication and networking. And to me, we could exhaust ourselves from now till Christ comes back with the problems around us. You want to know why? Because they're never going to go away. In Jerusalem... God had to like come and bring persecution to scatter him because he says, yeah, that is important. And if you don't do it, you're like the Pharisees that just don't lift a finger to help the person next to them. But you also got to see that all of it matters. And I said to this person, you know, (laughs) we didn't get into Africa because it was fashionable two, three years ago when everybody had money and we were looking to give to a good cause. And it's the same reason we're not going to get out of it now when it's not fashionable. We're doing it because those people are needy and because they don't have a voice and because it matters. And because if we let go of that, we really will get absorbed in the cesspool that we're in because guess what? It's a cesspool. But fashion does not dictate what we do. The minute it does, you need to go find another church. Please come tell me first, you know, like go straight to my face, um, Tell me I'm out to lunch, and then go find another church. The reason we do these Kilns classes is not because human rights, I'm teaching a class with Mike Saban here, it's not because human rights is fashionable. It's because it's fashionable, and we need to go deeper than the surface and understand that there's roots here, biblical roots, roots in the justice of God and the fact that we're made in the image of God. The reason we're teaching classes on logic is not because it's fun to pick at arguments, but because we need the tools to be able to care about the people we're trying to minister to. Care enough to do more than the Hollywood politicians do, the Sean Penns of this world, that talk really loudly, but they don't really know what the heck's going on. And we as Christians can't be the Sean Penns of Christianity with a lot of opinions and a lot of emotion, but we really have no clue what the heck's going on. And that's why we're doing a logic class. And the reason we're doing art is not because art is fashionable, but because our passion for art has to go deeper than fashion and be grounded in meaning and spirituality and depth and what God has created here. He's an aesthetic God. Fashion does not drive us. Truth is what we care about because it's a means of unifying everything. Last comment. G.K. Chesterton says, you know what? There's many angles at which a man may fall, only one in which he can stand. You know the interesting thing about truth is it's one angle. If we all have truth, we've got the same truth. It's not your truth, my truth. It's the same thing. It unifies. There's 5,000 different angles of falsehood that I can fall to. We in the church know that love unifies, and we're all screaming for love, and we should. If this church ever becomes unloving, tell me I suck, and then leave and go find another church just the same way as the other one. Okay, but we know love unifies. We know love, love brings about unity. Guess what? Truth does too. When Jesus looked at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, and speaking truth like that, and judging and critiquing what was going on in his mind, truth unifies. 
if we get lazy on truth and we allow for just everyone to have their own picture, their own pop culture reality, their own fashion, we can never unite. The generations will never come together. This gulf will always remain. We care about truth. Why? Because we care about having a relationship with God. We care about unity. We care about that all being real and tight and good and not just our own wish fulfillment. We care about truth because ultimately love, in some sense, is codependent with truth as well as truth codependent with love. I hope that makes sense. I've asked Craig Glazier to come up and just share a little about it, a bit about his story because it really is the marriage of this um, learning in wartime kind of an idea. My name is Craig Glazier. Uh, my wife, Christina, uh, our four kids, Lauren, Jackson, Cameron, and Taylor are all part of the Antioch family. The um, reason I'm here is to talk about my experience uh, at the Kilns College and how it helped change my life. Um, two or three years ago, you guys were probably in a lot of the same situation. Life was good. Friends and family were good. Business was good. Um, and uh, some challenges arose. Um, the economy kind of turned. Business, I was a real estate developer. Keyword is was. Um, and uh, our, uh, Chris and I had uh, twins uh, last year, Cameron and Taylor. And um, I grew up in a family that was um, uh, not atheist, not agnostic, just ignorant. Um, and my wife grew up in a family that was uh, a good Christian home, but she was taught uh, what to think and not how to think. And let me clarify that so I don't end up in a, you know, do these genes make me look fat situation. <laughs> She's not stupid. She knows how to think. Um, you know, growing up, I remember watching uh, Carl Sagan's, um, you know, show Cosmos, being an eight, ten-year-old kid watching it going, oh, looks good to me. Um, and never had anything, never had any information to really challenge it. And so... Um, unlike Ken, who made it to 22, I made it to 35 as an idiot. Um, and I, you know, I was ignorant. I thought, you know, I had everything under control. And uh, God used our daughter Taylor to uh, reach out to our family. Um, she died in December after seven surgeries in nine months. Um, and uh, we, God you know, use Taylor to uh, bring this to him. I think God also brought us to Antioch. Um, Ken wore a tie at the service, which is unique. <laughs> but um, uh, we, we started coming to Antioch and uh, kind of as a, uh, you know, we talked about counseling. Uh, we talked about uh, a lot of different alternatives. And we came to Antioch and uh, Chris reengaged. She had a foundation to go on. Um, uh, growing up and understanding some of the fundamentals. I didn't have anything. So, uh, you know, unlike, or not unlike probably a lot of you guys, is everybody has questions in their faith. Um, my issue, I mean, growing up, I knew Star Wars was not real, but I knew dinosaurs were, and I wasn't going to give that up. And uh, so, you know, I had issues with age of the earth, dinosaurs, evolution, you know, everything that I thought was right. And after two months of coming to Antioch, um, Kilns offered uh, Science in the Bible, taught by Rick Gearhart. And uh, Chris and I decided to go together, kind of treat it as a date night, you know, get a babysitter and go. We, you know, with everything going on, it's pretty hard to, you know, carve out 
two or three hours every week to, uh, to go to a class. Um, but after 14 weeks, um, which seems like a long time, but after the first week, Chris and I were so kind of engaged in it that we looked forward to every Tuesday going to class. Um, it, after you know uh, getting through that class, it really provided me with a, a foundation for my faith that I could, uh, you know, I, I went from, you know, the first couple of weeks getting a lot of answers about you know the dinosaurs, age of the earth, and all of a sudden they throw you know a guy named Jonah living in a whale for three days, and I was like, wait a minute. So, um, but it really uh, it got a lot of my just initial questions answered, and so. Kilns is, is, uh, was a huge part in bringing me uh, to become a better father, a better husband, uh, a better person. And it gave me a strong foundation for my faith. And as it grows and continues to grow, it gave us uh, a, our whole family a, a really strong foundation. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out right now, because this is another opportunity for me, we need babysitters because we're trying to go to another class and that's our biggest challenge is finding babysitters. So uh, um, the point of my story is, uh, you know, Ken has said before that Kilns College is the heavy lifting and it truly is. I mean, it's, it seems like a large commitment, 14 weeks, you know, studying, it, it's not. It, as soon as you get in and you get uh, a feel for how much you can actually gain from going to some of these classes, uh, it really, it, it, it'll change. I know it changed my life and, and hopefully if you guys can, um, you know, figure out a way to uh, make it work, it, it can change yours too. So, and then the last thing, uh, flag football. I didn't hear anybody announce that Brandon and Sam are getting together flag football at uh, two o'clock today at Ponderosa. So come out and pull a hamstring with us. <laughs>